I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. So hi everyone, we're here today with Steph Deepa Vane, a Senior Research Associate at Cambridge and a Research Fellow in Digitalization at ODI. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Um, so maybe we can just like, start with a little bit about you and your background. Like, How did you get into researching like public social media and tech, um, and particularly like social media and publics in Kenya? Yeah, sure. So actually, I didn't start um, with an interest at all in social media or tech in particular. Um, my interest was always in studying politics, but thinking about what does politics look like in everyday life. So in this sort of outside of elections, outside of the moments of hype, how do people experience politics? And in particular, um, what, what could be potentially powerful? What opportunities are there for sort of change or dynamism within everyday politics? And so as part of that, um, for my PhD research back in sort of the mid-2010s, um, I ended up doing my field work in Mombasa, a city in the coast of Kenya. Um, and I went there for a period of time to just sort of get a sense about what's an aspect of everyday politics within this place of where I'd had some previous experience as well that would be interesting to explore. And it was in that sort of context over the course of the year there that actually social media became relevant. So I started looking at the street gatherings where people would meet every day and talk about politics. And then over the course of that year, people started to create Facebook groups as an alternative mechanism. And then increasingly they went from sort of a few hundred to tens of thousands of people in these groups talking about politics. And so it was sort of this sort of natural evolution about being interested in everyday politics, where people go to talk about it, and then social media becoming part of the landscape um, within which this was taking place. Um, and so within that, then I began to look a lot more about, well, actually, what's changing or what's not, and what is actually novel about when the medium or the place that people are talking about politics in everyday life changes. And so that sort of became then the launching point for sort of a lot of other work in thinking about the, like, the public sphere, the public sphere in digital age, more current issues about mis- and disinformation and how we think about trust and truth online. So you wrote a book about you kind of publics and social media in Kenya. So maybe you could talk us a little bit about like the project. What did you find? What was the argument? What were like the main takeaways um, of the book? Yeah, so the point of the book, I guess, the underlying question was this idea of, well, when and how can the way we talk about politics change? And is there anything in particular about the places in which we go to talk about politics that can sort of enable or frustrate change? And this was really motivated by this particular context in Kenya where there's actually a sort of quite a strong, sort of generalizing here, but um, quite a strong general interest in politics. So people know about it, they talk about it. In one dimension, there's a sort of very vibrant um, political debate and understanding about who people's politicians are, what's going on, and an interest in what's happening. On the other side, when it comes to things like elections, um, it's not sort of unfamiliar, there tends to be this sort of strong polarization. So there's elections coming up in Kenya in August, and immediately when elections start to come up, it starts to get painted around particular individual elites and around, in this case, particular ethnic groups. And so I sense what I wanted to know was, well, what's going on in these places where people are talking about politics, where it seems like there's a lot of opportunity for them, for people to understand, talk about things in different ways, but when it comes to sort of the major debates, we always fall on these same polarized lines. What's going on here? And is there a possibility for things to change? Um, and so with that sort of as the underlying problematic, um, I went to Mombasa for sort of a year and started following some of the same people in these gatherings on the street where people talk about politics. So a really interesting aspect of Kenyan politics, particularly in this city, is that they have this almost version of 
what we have in the UK here, um, like Hyde Park Corner, where people go and talk about, and they can just sort of talk about in the open about issues of concern, and anyone can speak, and they sort of stand up and speak um, to who's ever passing by. And whereas here, it's a bit sort of fringe now. It doesn't really don't see Hyde Park Corner as, as sort of a mainstream thing. But in the city where I was, there was, I mean, I was going to about seven or eight different ones in the city where usually men, they're quite gender spaces, would come every day, um, talk about politics, and you would get sort of from 40 to 50 to sometimes over 100 people gathering and sort of debating common affairs. So I started with these, followed some of the same people in these groups, and then also followed and, and looked at what they were doing on social media. And that time, WhatsApp wasn't big yet. That's changed a lot. At that time, it was mostly Facebook. Twitter, not so much either, because Twitter was a bit more of an elite platform. And, then, um, and so the book is really just looking at um, what's going on in these physical places? Are there things about the space? Are there things about the organization of the debate? Are there things about who the people are in these that might lead to the re reproduction of these sort of very common um, tropes of thinking about politics? Or is there opportunity for change? And I guess the main takeaway from that <laughs> very long introduction is that in a sense there is hope across, especially in these sort of physical gatherings, for change, and that lies in the dimension of uncertainty that exists amidst, sort of in the very active people gathering. And yes, there's a lot of ways in which the debate's structured that puts people back to common tropes, but there is this sort of possibility and uncertainty of what, of what could take place and how. And that, that uncertainty carries on to social media, but it's premised on different things. And actually what makes, what, and it was making debate uncertain on a platform like Facebook was the fact that it was in a sense, individualized. So people mm. experienced it on their own platform. And importantly, they couldn't see other people as spectators listening to it. So it was a very individual experience um, in terms of listening to public space. You couldn't see and, and read off of other people. And then the second aspect was is they lost the sort of commonality of the discussion. So I point out in the book as well, too, about how on different interfaces it always appears slightly different. So you're not necessarily participating in the same thing, although you think you are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that, that dimension of uncertainty actually ended up pushing people back to what they saw as familiar. So there was uncertainty, but the possibility necessarily for new common ways of relating to each other seemed to be constantly frustrated by the individualizing nature of the mm -hmm, uncertainty mm -hmm. online. Um, so that was sort of one of the main takeaways, I think, about the digital versus not that yeah. came out of it. That's so interesting. I wonder, too, because, you know, there was all this rhetoric in, like, the 2010s around the, like, liberatory potential of social media, especially around the Arab Spring, where people were saying, like, oh, people are, like, connecting on social media, but then using that to have, like, a physical presence. So I wonder, like, when you were comparing the, like, physical and, like, digital kind of communications, like, you mentioned in the book a lot of, like, um, ways in which, as you kind of laid out, like, communication itself changes, but did you feel like comparing the two, one, like were they complementary? Like was one displacing the other? And then two, did it did it feel like one might be leading to something more tangible and change? Like one thing you were talking about, you know, with, with like a physical space, you have a hundred people gathered there, you feel what the crowd is feeling and that might in a way more easily lend itself to like physical action in the, in the form of protest. Whereas like if you're on social media, just watching a debate, um, it, it might not as easily lend itself, even though you might be connected to more people. So, so I wonder, like, yeah, what was the relationship between, like, physical and, and political action? Yeah, so, I mean, there's, I think, you, you sort of, I think there's two interesting things here. I think you hit on one sort of aspect of the physical space, which was that sort of commonality of being together in person. And I think when these street gatherings that I was following first formed, or at least the narrative around their origins. It was in the 1990s when um, Kenya was under quite a repressive government. There was the movement for increasing open, like increasingly opening up um, of the political space. And in that sense, people would meet to try and talk and make sense of what was going on. And then there would be sort of arrests. And there was this sort of very real confrontation. And that confrontation and sort of the gathering together versus um, different forms of security forces still exist among these street gatherings in Nairobi, where there's a different dimension. Um, what's interesting, I guess, I didn't get to observe that as much when I was doing my work, mainly because the um, politics of the city meant that most of these street gatherings were in line with the county authorities, and mm -hmm. so there wasn't that sort of resistance, but there was this sort of real connection to, to, sort of, to what was happening and, sort of, and to different sort of events. What was interesting, though, about the social media groups was that 
in a sense, in some ways, the discussion was slightly less disconnected to everyday politics, especially when it directly transferred over. But there were two areas where it did seem to link up to politics in perhaps a more of optimistic is the right word, but at least a bit more real way. If I'm not sure what the right word is for it, but one was around when it was about um, issues of religion or, or really sort of sensitive, slightly personal issues, and those tended not to be discussed in the physical gatherings because mm. um, it was quite a polarizing point of contention. So this is a point of time when I was doing this work, when um, Muslim clerics were being um, disappeared or killed, and there was. Um, a lot of back and forth between sort of some terrorist attacks and protests, as well as sort of repression by state authorities um, and also foreign authorities as well involved in it, but as well against back and forth. So that when, and when that was discussed, because it was so sensitive and personal, that tended not to be discussed in, in the physical gatherings. And when it was raised, people get really nervous and not engage much and then change the topic, whereas that could be discussed online. I'm not mm. sure if it was because of the distance to the individuals. And then the other thing that happened online, which was interesting, was... Um, it caught the attention of local politicians. And the street gatherings also did, but only, but less frequently. And what social media allowed for was some, I guess, especially young men, I guess, to actually speak vocally to an audience that sort of generated a level of engagement that caused county officials to notice. Whereas if they tried to get their attention or organize something and intentionally get them to pay attention to what they were saying on the ground, it wouldn't happen. Mm. So it's... It's not the first thing, but so that was interesting, was that they were able to capture attention because social media was seen to be this sort of thing that everybody was on, or increasingly people were on, and you had to pay attention to, even if it was detached from politics on the ground. Interesting. I wonder, too, then, so it's interesting in that, in a, in a certain way, that the, like, social media is producing a written record, in a sense, where, like, you could, that, that's part of its power, it seems like, is that you can go back and... and view it as a politician, you don't have to show up at the at the debates and then, you know, your words disappear into the air. Um, but so I wonder too, and you, you kind of mentioned this in your previous answer, like what what were the power dynamics and did they shift on the different platforms? So you mentioned like the, the actual physical space was quite a gendered space. It was male dominated, but then obviously switching to social media, then there's a literacy divide um, and the way that like the platform architecture itself is is based. So did did you see um, like a difference in the power dynamics that were coming up, both in terms of like who might be moderating and who might be contributing, and then also the way that like the company and the mm -hmm. state itself was trying to um, affect those those conversations. I think the literacy point was real. I think in both the street gatherings and online, they're both exclusive places. So I think I. In some sense, see an optimism in the fact that there was a sort of uncertain political debate, but they were very much not equal and fully inclusive. So as I said, the street ones were very gendered, and they said they were open to women, but women usually weren't present. And me being a woman, and also white and present, was, was quite jarring in some sense, because it was not what was expected. There were more women available online in the group, I think, but sort of I, I looked at sort of the membership to the extent to which you could see um, but the moderators tended to still be men. Um, they tended to be men that were vocal outside of the online spaces already, but were perhaps not sort of the center of attention. So some were able to become these sort of mini celebrities within the mm -hmm. politics of, the, of this, of sort of small communities in the city as a result of it. Um, so it wasn't sort of nobody that got it, but it tended, it wasn't the older people necessarily. And I think what is interesting about this is thinking about what it's doing to who is seen to have influence when it comes to the sort of power struggles in Kenyan politics. And so I think about sort of the state, I think it's more, it makes a lot of sense, I think, some ways to talk about, as I mentioned before, in terms of elite politics. So Kenyan politics has tended to be driven by particular elite, mostly men, um, with ties back to independence. It's not necessarily that changing, which is also not atypical <laughs> for other places either. Um, but what you can see is sort of understanding is how do these what are the networks around these elite politicians and how do they try to sort of exercise and manipulate control in order to have gain around elections and also outside of mm -hmm. elections? But elections are sort of a very much a convening point for understanding who's in power. And so there's two sides to this. So one side to it that came out was that a few of these sort of individual older men in these street gatherings and also outside of them really mattered when it, comes, when it came to the logistics of an election campaign and ensuring that the right votes happened in the right places. So a lot of politics is still very much 
offline. And it's a country that is also still predominantly rural as well. And so there's that whole dimension. But the other side of it that we've seen come out in Kenya is sort of increasingly coordinated, um, I don't want to just call it like a disinformation campaign, this increasingly coordinated sort of propagandistic machine through social media. And certain, and it happens on two levels. So one, in the last elections, I saw some individuals who were quite good at shaping online debate and responding quickly, ending up working for local politicians after the election when they won. And on the other side, this sort of industry that's hard to evidence, but seems to be increasingly evidenced, of um, networks of sort of individuals who are paid small amounts to have multiple accounts and sort of and manage the debate online, whether it's now in WhatsApp groups or then it was on Facebook, and sort of ensure watch what's happening, but also sort of overload with particular messages and support certain campaigns. And that's actually quite coordinated, and it's paid, and it's integrated mm. into campaigns. So it's seen not necessarily as having an influence on the results fully, but it's also seeing as an incredibly crit critical part. So I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, mm -hmm. so it's there, it's seen as influential. Certain people are coming out as important. Politicians are investing in it and it's definitely shaping the debate, but there is still this emphasis on offline politics as well. And that's sort of one hasn't overcome the other yet. I wonder, so you kind of mentioned, you mentioned free basics in, in your book, and I, I think that was rolled out in Kenya as well. Um, the sort of, you know, mm -hmm. Facebook's, basically the internet, but it's just Facebook. Um, and I know in like India, for instance, um, but, but in other countries in which it, uh, free basics has been rolled out, there's been quite a bit of resentment as a, as a form of like neocolonialism. And then also just like um, epitomizes the way in which like Western companies can control or, or um, influence or structure debates in other places that they don't really understand the context around, whether it's like who they're banning, what contents they're banning, and who they're not banning, and who they don't have the capacity to like content moderate. So I wonder, like in in your discussions and in your research, like was there that that sense that like Facebook controlled or had the ability to structure the architecture of something that was like becoming quite important to politics? So what's interesting was that at the time I was doing this work, it was between sort of 2013 to 2016, 17. Uh, was that that was around the time when Cambridge Analytica was happening. Cambridge Analytica was a UK-based company that was using Facebook data on individuals to then sort of shape and inform election campaigns. And, that, and it was present in the elections in Kenya in 2017. So it was right sort of on the end of that. So the idea that data on Facebook might be being manipulated or that the corporation might be involved in somehow manipulating outcomes of politics was starting to come out in scholarship or more generally in the media. In my fieldwork, though, which was interesting from sort of 2013 to 2016, 17-ish, so right before this, was there's a lot of discussion of how individual elite politicians were manipulating Facebook, but not a lot about how Facebook might be manipulating yet. And so I think it's sort of a point in time, it's interesting to reflect back sort of pre-discussions of surveillance capitalism, pre-discussions of mm -hmm. tech companies as problematic. There was a time when we weren't really talking about it, but it was starting to happen, and maybe we were talking about outside of it, but at least in terms of the people I was interviewing, unless I even pushing for it, it wasn't at the forefront, but there was a real suspicion of individuals misusing it, but not of the platform itself mm, as constraining things. And I thought, I mean, looking back at now, it seems sort of quite foreign in terms of how we sort of think about sort of the intentions of tech companies and how they're using our data, but at least at that point in time, it wasn't the main point That's of so concern. So most of it was around like some an individual spreading misinformation or misleading the platform. Yeah, or they would say too, like if someone posted something in favor of one politician, other people would sort of come back and say, oh, you must be the driver of that person. Oh, I know that you're their sister or they're paying you to say mm. that. Or you're from that, like you're from that group or that area. So that's obviously why you're saying it. Um, yeah, so there's this always constant suspicion that there was some sort of individual intent or yeah. individual people in Kenya that were shaping the debate, but not Facebook that was trying to mm -hmm, shape the mm -hmm. debate. Or, I wonder too, and then, because right, there was a really good um, like long form piece in Rest of World about the internet shutdown in Sudan, I think it was a year ago at this point. Um, uh, I wonder then, not just like the company or individuals, was there any kind of 
discussion around like the government or politicians or like a sense that you shouldn't share as much because you were saying mm. you know some more sensitive topics were able to be shared online where they wouldn't in a physical sense but was there a sense that like the government or the state might be surveilling um, individuals online and it, did that have a sort of chilling effect in certain areas um, and and do you think it changes the nature too I mean that the the Sudan piece was really interesting in terms of how like through basically like the switch of a button, you know, the state or a politician can turn off communications infrastructure in the way that if people are physically gathering, it's much, much more difficult to disrupt that. Um, so was there a sense in which that kind of like changed the power dynamics of like how like from a top look top down, like mm. top looking down sense um, that like control over over public spaces um, could be exercised? That, yeah, that was present. So, and that came out mostly when I was uh, talking to people about their roles in the elections. And so when it came to, I was like, less than legal methods of trying to organize election campaigns or get people from one area to another or register in a different constituency to manipulate numbers, um, those discussions would either happen on basic phones, but even they said basic phones could be tracked, or they would happen in like print, but it wouldn't be online. There's that sense that things could always be surveilled or watched. Um, and that was from the more politically engaged people were very aware of that and there was sort of always sense that anybody could be seeing something or anybody could be watching you there's a difference I guess in um, in Kenya at least in that there hasn't there's been sort of resistance or less of an ability for the government to fully shut down social media or the internet like has happened in some of the neighboring countries Mm, Uganda has also been a bigger deal Um, Sudan as you mentioned so in a sense, the, there's been a little bit of pushback sometimes by some of um, the networks, so they also have their own political connections as well, but there's been sort of a bit of a pushback in the sense that they haven't been able to fully shut it down, and so there's mm. always, there's at least in recent years, there's been a sort of element of open debate by the sense that it's always being watched. Um, and that did temper it. I think that's probably something that might be the idea that it's sort of the ability for the state to watch is becoming more apparent than it would have been in that point in time. I think a lot's changed in the last decade, probably mm. more than we've realized. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that possibility is there. And actually, it happened on sort of a micro level as well, too, in the groups, in that um, the administrators of some of the Facebook groups I was looking where people would talk would sort of say, if people were talking about things that they thought of topic or using, I mean, one time it was a discussion about people's quality of English. Um, and if you keep on insulting people's quality of English, then we're going to delete your comments. And they would delete the comments. And so there's somewhere I'd be watching and where the comments would be there and they would refresh the Facebook page and they were deleted. Mm. Um, so there was that sort of level and the group moderators would, would delete things as well. And then that was sort of carried up as well into politics that mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. would always be watching. And so then were most of these discussions happening within the Facebook groups? Is that the... This time, at that point in time, it was Facebook groups. Um, Interesting. And, and, and I mean, at that time, they were quite vocal like it would be I mean most of like there would be sort of paragraphs of comments at times over things and some of the at sort of the height there were um, posts that like generated over 900 comments around a discussion back and forth over a topic and so it was very much an active debate in that sense I think if you look at the groups now they still have sort of 40 to 50 or 60,000 members on them and things are posted, but it's become less discussion-based. And I think that sort of signals the movement to other platforms. Like WhatsApp has become much more prominent um, as a space for a lot of these discussions. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's displaced Facebook quite a bit. But at least at that point in time, WhatsApp wasn't that big yet. Interesting. Right, to go back to what you said so that, you know, things have changed in the decade. So have there been, because I know like around like Roe v. Wade, all of the discussions of, of, uh, how location data or certain things can be used in prosecution. So was there any, I mean, was it just like an overwhelming sense that like, oh, surveillance is possible or was there, has there anything that has changed or certain flashpoints that came around that like made it more obvious? Um, uh, or is it just that like the conversation kind of globally changed? I mean, there's been points in Kenya where people have sort of been targeted. I'm struggling to think of specific examples. There have been sort of individuals targeted for it. There's been sort of a general sense of media repression or censorship. So sort of pre, so I guess in Kenya actually before things moved online a bit, there was sort of repression of some radio stations and media houses 
um, by the government of the time, and there was sort of a sense that people moved, especially some of the sort of middle class elites moved online to talk about politics because it was seen to be more open than the media, which was being a bit more repressed and was sort of being censored to sort of temper down what it was saying. Um, the a sort of a point in Kenya where there was sort of concern about monitoring of what people are saying and labeling it sort of as something because it was, but also labeling as hate speech happened in 2007 when there's a lot of violence in the elections and that sort of became a premise then for monitoring or watching what people were saying and sort of the elections after that there was a much more tempered debate in the sense of mm. wanting to avoid being singled out um, as a result of that. So yeah, I mean it's there's. I, there is isolated examples of it. There is a history of censorship and repression in Kenya as well, too. Not to the same degree as I said, some of the other neighboring countries. And I think the sort of element of some open debate in Kenya is something that is a bit distinct, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, That's so interesting. That, so that was kind of what I was going to ask you next, which is that, um, I mean, there was this really interesting uh, digital anthropology that was done a few years ago, I forget, um, where uh, this group of anthropologists at some London university did kind of like how people in different um, geographical contexts use all sorts of social media. And so instead of looking across at behavior across cl- platforms, we're looking at cross-platform behavior in certain areas. Um, but like also the way you're talking, I feel like you, know, you could also be talking about, it doesn't seem like Facebook and the issues that come up around it are necessarily so distinct from you know, any other kind of context in which it's deployed. So do, do you feel like both like the way people use social media um, in Kenya was like different than any uh, like other context. And then, and also then the, like the second question is like, then do you think like any of the issues that came up around the way social media um, was used were also distinct, if that makes sense. So like the uses, cultural uses, and then um, like political issues. The first starting point is that I think there are, I'll get to why, there is a dimension where place matters. I think, Although even before understanding place matters, I think there's a starting point that is important to recognize is that most of our studies of social media um, and even sort of data-driven social media platforms, that whole space, comes from data sets that are based on the use of where the platforms are most dominant and often English language. And so that means that most of our understanding of the reference point and the data that we use to study these comes from a Western English-speaking audience. And so even regardless of whether the patterns are going to be the same or not, that's sort of from a, from, from, for me, from a sort of even academic perspective, that's inherently problematic because we have this sort of, we're holding up this one population of space as the reference point for understanding what goes on with Facebook. Um, and so from a sort of methodological point of view, regardless of whether it is different or not, it's important to start from different places to actually understand mm-hmm. the possibilities. The second point, I guess, that feeds onto that is that what happens with something like how we use Facebook is that the affordance of it are very, the affordance of a platform are very much shaped by how it's used and sort of the norms that are created around that and the possibilities. And so I think it does take on different inflections based on the place. I think some of the ways in which I think we see it being used in election campaigns are very much localized. It's not the same in all different African countries. The networks you get around different elite politicians, the way that sort of people are able to sort of create, um, I guess, recognition for themselves and influence in elections is very much shaped around Kenya. I think the nature of the way in which it's used for some satirical online protests is very mm-hmm. much a Kenyan thing. So there's this sort of hashtag that's been going for ages of Kenyans on Twitter. And there's there was another hashtag that was big in the 2010s as well, too, hashtag someone tell CNN, which was a satirical thing of all the things CNN got wrong about Kenya that sort of formed around <laughs> Obama's visit um, to Kenya. So I think there's a sort of a satirical element of politics that's been always sort of present and part of the counter debate to some of the mainstream repression that sort of happened um, that is very much Kenya. So I think that that is different. And I think so that's sort of the, fir- um, the first bit is that there are inflections to it. And I think to understand the possibilities of a platform, we need to understand it in the context of different places. And when you sort of question our assumptions about what is normal, about what Facebook is based mm-hmm. on how it's been used. And even just in like, it's not the same everywhere in the States, I imagine it's quite on sort of a dominant mm-hmm. understanding. Um, I mean, one of the things that I think is sort of slightly, I mean, that I guess makes me slightly nervous about not just sort of not specifically Kenya, but when you look at Facebook use across different African countries, is this sort of 
this intersection of um, what these platforms look like in in more authoritarian contexts, which mm-hmm. I mean, and democracies can also be quite authoritarian. Like, let's not let's just say there's like a clear boundary here of how we're thinking about it. But in contexts where the state has a desire or reason to repress the population, how it then intersects with tech companies or not. And I think it can be problematic almost on both sides in the sense the ability for shutdowns is quite concerning in some ways about what that then means as we rely on these platforms more. Um, so for some, for example, mm-hmm. um, something like WhatsApp is used for internal government communications at a county level in some counties I've studied in Kenya. So when there was the shutdown last year, that shut down more than just social communications, it can shut down wow. sort of local politics, right? So there's a very different thing of the sort of shutdowns when there's a high dependency on it. And then the other side I guess I worry about too is sort of then what that I think comes out here and speaks to bigger issues is what role then or what emphasis are we playing on tech companies? And there's a sense that in the context, I mean, it seems that when governments are more authoritarian, there's almost a greater trust of the corporation. We've seen this in some of the debates in India as well too, right? Like, do we care more if WhatsApp shares this data with Facebook or do we care more if the Indian government tries to get information from WhatsApp or Facebook? And sort of this idea that we almost start to talk about the tech companies as sort of a as a good force <laughs> against authoritarian context in this too. And so I think, so I think what's interesting is when you look at it in these sort of different state contexts and how the tech companies are operating, it speaks to these much bigger issues and helps us to sort of see some of the tensions and how we think about what's good or what's not or what sort of who should have power, who shouldn't. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, Facebook doesn't comply with government. It's like really bad until you get to like, I don't know, a context in which like the West doesn't like and all of a sudden like Facebook not complying with states is like, oh my God, they're a force for liberation. Woohoo. Um, yeah. Yeah. I wonder then on that point, what would you, how would you then characterize like the relationship between tech companies and like maybe the, the Kenyan government or, or other um, like African state governments becomes so, it's like so different in different contexts, like the game we play. So like, or, or the, the game that they play, which is like, you know, so like obviously in India, Facebook and uh, and the Indian government seem to be at loggerheads. Then, you know, Facebook also was famously at loggerheads with Australia. But then in other contexts, so like in Thailand or um, Vietnam or Southeast Asian com- countries, right, they're like very much complying with uh, what like state governments are requesting them to do. So like, how would you characterize that relationship of, you say, you know, it's one of dependency, yeah. right? Like, I mean, I think there's two dimensions. I think one side of it is that there's sort of there is people sort of talk about the fact that tech companies are caring more about African countries and audiences as sort of new consumers, um, but on the other side, I mean, I imagine it hasn't changed dramatically. But around sort of the mid 2010s, Kenya was 0.3.4 percent of all Facebook users in the world, and like four percent of I think Facebook users in Africa. So it's still quite small. So we can say it matters more, but they're quite tangential in some ways to the platforms. So in that sense, they sort of there is an increasing dependency on the platforms in some ways and innovation around them as well. Um, and in that sense, when they don't matter that much to the platforms, but when they're sort of increasingly central to different types of everyday operations, whether it's government bureaucratic relations, relations with the media, how people connect with sort of even sort of work or social lives, that sort of, there's a huge discrepancy there in terms of dependency and power. The other side though, is that when, I mean, this is, I mean, I'm not sure what I make of this or not, but when there's certain places that are more tangential perhaps to the primary interests of companies, then that also tends to mean that things like the algorithms they use work less well. Um, so for example, we did some work, outside, I did some work collaboratively outside um, of Kenya, so we're comparing with it Kenya Swahili, but then we're also looking at Amharic in Ethiopia and Somali um, in Somalia and looking at how Google search algorithms worked in relation to different, different languages. Hmm. And what you see is that actually when you type in a word like Girl in Amharic, um, a whole bunch of sexualized and pornographic um, autocomplete predictions came up mm. because essentially when things are less surveilled, it also becomes possible for different types of use that are not seeing good or bad or whatever else. So in a sense, the lack of interest also opens up possibilities for different types of use that we can then impose different sort of ideas of whether it's good or bad on it. Um, but there's sort of an uncertainty in the sense it's the tension, you might say, of when things are when people are sort of completely or largely disempowered because they don't really matter to the primary interests of the companies in that sort of space there's also the opportunities for other use 
that we might not mm. see because we just don't know what's necessarily happening in these other languages or scripts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So yeah. Like, yeah, when the Myanmar genocide is happening and all of it's being, all this hate speech is on Facebook, it turns out they don't have any language moderators. They don't even have an office in the country in which it's being used. So, like, lack of of both interest and capacity. Um, I want to ask you, too. So, like, you mentioned Cambridge Analytica, and there's a lot of the rhetoric around social media and publics are obviously, like, the ways in which, like, quote-unquote, it's poisoned or hacked and you know the crux of Shoshana Zuboff's famous book is is the ways in which like social media can basically be used to brainwash people Mm. um so I wonder like for for you especially like looking looking at the the physical versus the like virtual or social media spaces like do you think that's true I mean like do you think do, do you think it's um like social media is particularly or even easily like used to like sp- spread that kind of misinformation and propaganda in a way that is like g- like genuinely changing or quote unquote brainwashing people mm-hmm. or radicalizing people in a way that like would not be able to happen otherwise or or is it similar to the kind of misinformation that that might have been spread mm-hmm. anyways on more traditional forms of media on radio on you know by word of mouth like do you, do you, do you think about the danger of social media and publics in the disinformation radicalization space. Um. Yeah, um, I do. <laughs> um, so, I, so the first thing I think to say about that is that I think there, there does seem to be something distinct about the scale and the way in which dis and misinformation happen online, both intentional and unintentional forms of, of um, false or misleading information. Um, and I think the sort of onslaught of it, and I think the the difficulty for us now to know how to sort of ground what is reliable and why in sort of a collective sense of this is fact or this is not, and how that's becoming destabilized online is probably a problem because in a sense it removes our ability to judge what to believe or not, and that sort of destabilizing environment, I mean, if we go back to some of the stuff I sort of studied around... Um, the work of Hannah Arendt and thinking about lying in politics is problematic because we sort of lose our ability and our grounding to sort of participate in the common public. Um, and that's one thing I would sort of worry about the effect of dis and misinformation online. On the other side though, when I compared across the physical gatherings and particularly thinking about disinformation in different contexts was that there does seem to be a difference in how at least um, initially, perhaps now it's changing when it's become so prevalent in sort of in, in, as it is now um, in Kenya versus say as maybe perhaps in the UK or the states or Canada was that um, there's a sort of sense among the people that I was sort of well, like working with uh, I'm researching with in Kenya um, in in Mombasa in Kenya that you can't really trust anything in politics and everything needs to be questioned so mm-hmm. rumor was quite big so there's always the possibility things could be true but there was always a sense well we need to question where things are coming from and there wasn't the sort of idea that we should believe anything and so when it transferred online that sort of same critical or perhaps sort of healthy mistrust elements of information carried out and so it wasn't sort of shock of conspiracies it could almost like weigh it out along sort of a wave of like Mm. there is these conspiracies but then also yes everything's questioned there might be an underlying truth to it nothing is sort of necessarily fully fact or not but it's always sort of open to debate and that in a sense could perhaps protect it from sort of what we might see in the States or on something like QAnon, where there seems to be the sort of inability to sort of weigh these conspiracies in a way for the public debate to sort of handle them existing, but then also to sort of retain some sort of other, more, mm-hmm. I guess, solid debate around it. And so I think in that sort of sense, the way in which people dealt with rumor and were able to sort of absorb it, talk around it, expect that it didn't need to behold all the truth, but could still have some underlying truths of power dynamics was present in a way that I haven't seen in the same way here. And there's sort of that I guess what yeah, what point that piece said that maybe we need to sort of separate out the effects of mis and disinformation in different places and sort of the physical places that was much that was really apparent. Um, that's really interesting. So do you think that's just like the history of of politics? Because I think that's like I mean everybody in the U.S. likes to blame Fox News for like uh, mm. uh, and the Murdoch media for like just this like hype and just like anger and inability to like g- yeah give give news with any kind of thoughtfulness mm. um uh but so, so do you think that's just like the consequence of like history or the way like culture developed around it or or are there 
like specific institutions that you think are like cultivating debate in that way? Because even CNN yeah. isn't really that thoughtful, right? No. Like, even like it was, it's not even yeah. if there's like a thoughtful media necessarily. I'm saying, I mean, I was like, there's journalists doing excellent things, but like it's not saying that there's like a whole, th- like the media is always that thoughtful. Um, it's obviously been like constrained as well by the state, especially at points in history. Um, I mean, one thing that we've been looking at and going back to is thinking about how the role that um, rumor and gossip and stuff played in sort of the anti-colonial discourse. So in a sense, um, there's sort of a power, and it came out some of in these street gatherings too, there's sort of a power in things not being seen as fact that sort of give them sort of a protection from um, a strong state in a sense. They're not seen as a threat because it's it's just a rumor. There's sort of a fluidness to it. And so in that sense, that became sort of in some, there's work of various different scholars that talk, that look at the role that rumor has played in sort of sustaining sort of a counter state discourse, especially under the colonial state. And so maybe that has something to play with it, that there's sort of seen a, a value in it. The other thing that we've been talking about as well too is trying to think about how people's relationship to religion and spirituality might play out in different ways mm. to be able to absorb things like, I'm just like, like conspiracy or things that are sort of perhaps or sort of less sort of grounded in a way that they can sort of encompass different types of discussions or different types of information within public debate. So I don't know, again, I don't think it's a good or bad thing. I think there's different mm-hmm. problems mm-hmm. in all different sides of how this comes together, but um, that might be there. I mean, also there's something as well, I guess, that's, I guess maybe it's also this sort of separation I saw in some of my work in Kenya between a very polarized politics, but then... Um, an understanding, it seemed to be in debate that things were also more complex, so people would speak on one level, but also there was a deeper understanding and sort of an understanding that among at least, especially those people that spoke in these gatherings, that you need to understand politics because it matters for your business, your economic life, everything. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, that desire to understand sort of very concrete, tangible politics because they saw it mattering to their everyday life also Mm -hmm. perhaps changed how they then engaged with information that maybe is different from in the states i don't know i wonder too then like some like around the the architecture of the social media sites because i remember i used to do some international justice work and i remember uh lawyers talking to me and saying like the court has huge problems Mm -hmm. with uh operating in like certain african states because it's just like completely misunderstanding the cultural Mm -hmm. situation even around like naming so they were talking about like these western european lawyers who couldn't understand that like people's (laughs) names changed and it was like normal and like it wasn't like in a western context but it means you're on the run um so i wonder too around like the internet like was there things around because i was thinking I know, like, in, in the U.S. And, and Europe, even, like, trans people will say, like, mm-hmm. look, this this architecture of individualization and names don't work for us. And, uh, like, Instagram just changed its policy, too, I think, is now showing all your mm-hmm. past usernames. So a lot of trans people are upset that it's, like, dead naming them, basically. Again, not, like, thinking. Uh, these tech companies not thinking. So I wonder, is there, are there ways in which the Internet architecture, too, seems to, like, miss... Um, or, or be misused because I know because like if you change your name a certain you can only change your name a certain mm-hmm. number of times on Facebook before they stop it. Um, but I wonder if if there is there is there that mismatch between like the Silicon Valley Western engineers and cultural context in which it's being used. So there is a misunderstanding in terms of the intentions or how people are going to use the platforms versus how they're actually used. So just the idea on Facebook that one user is one person wasn't really the sort of the case, and there was sort of a fluidity that I saw between people creating new identities, deleting passwords, coming, deleting user accounts, coming up again on another user account, creating it, creating multiple ones. And there's sort of a, there's a much more fluidity there, there I think, than was intended as well. Um, it's, I guess it's interesting to see, I guess people sort of make the architecture work for the context that they're in as well. I know in Nigeria, um, some of sort of the larger um, churches or sort of religious leaders have created their own platforms. They'll use something like Twitter to push people onto their platforms rather than using things. Oh, so we are seeing different platforms coming up that better perhaps reflect a place and say the role of Twitter in that case might be more about directing people rather than being used for debate. And so I was doing some work looking at COVID conspiracies in Nigeria and that was one of the things that came out was there was religious leaders were super present but invisible on Twitter. So it's not always interesting. What we interesting. see. Um, I mean, I imagine one of the other areas would be, I guess, in the effectiveness of 
the targeting and the ability to sort of understand the language and where they're targeting. So I think I'm sort of suspicious of Cambridge Analytica's even effectiveness in sort of influencing, <laughs> I guess, in this context. Yeah. I think it's one, there's just language being sort of a base um, base factor as well, too, is it just we just don't operate as well in languages that are not European languages and languages that are not Latin script, right? So, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I wonder, yeah, I was going to ask too, like, are, are there, is there a push to have more local alternatives to like social media or even any kind of other internet infrastructure? I mean, I know you mentioned WhatsApp and the way the government relies on WhatsApp, but is there like a push to have like national tech infrastructure? Not that I've seen with social media. I think one thing to remember in this context, I guess, is that if we think more broadly, um, some of the platforms around mobile money or other applications are much further ahead in contexts oh, like Kenya, right? So, I mean, 10 years ago, at least, um, Mpesa, Kenya's sort of main mobile money platform was already in operation and was huge. So there's certain areas where perhaps not in the social media one, but different typeful platforms do exist that are more local that serve different needs. I think mobile money has mm-hmm. been one area that's been quite big in this context um, and quite far ahead of us here, actually, or mm-hmm. at least far, mm-hmm. quite far ahead of Europe. Oh, in, like, um, in what way? Yeah, well, well, just like it exists, I guess. Like, oh, it exists. I mean, it's the fact that you could have sort of basic phones <laughs> that you could exchange, like have money attached to SIM card, like back in the early 2010s, and that that sort of be a sort of a main fact. I mean, that sort of transforms sort of, I think, remittances within the country, sort of everybody, a lot of transactions happen through mobile money and that sort of was very familiar to people in a way that I think is not here and even yet we don't really have that. Like we have bank accounts on our phone and we have Apple Pay but mm-hmm. not, mm-hmm. this was um, yeah, sort of a, a Kenyan based platform. Interesting. Interesting. So yeah, so like looking forward in terms of like either what you're researching mm-hmm. or what issues like are going to come up, like what are you what are you most <laughs> looking at, concerned about, thinking about in this, this space? I guess the thing that one thing that worries me is sort of the multiple ways in which we sort of get these reinforcing forms of exclusion or disempowerment of the same people all the time. So in one way, the way that these platforms are playing out very much reflects global power inequalities that we've seen playing out along like racial lines, colonial lines that go back, right? Like that's all those that's not really changing in that sense. Um, it's then layering on top of context where it's playing out in places where there isn't necessarily um, great um, legislation yet to protect people's human rights online, um, protect people's sort of privacy or control, and where there's sort of potential for a lot of abuse there. Um, and so when you sort of get, and so that then again reinforces exclusion. And then on the top of that, um, the people that tend to benefit from these systems, I mean, it is opening up new possibilities. We are seeing sort of new forms of gig work or different forms of engagement or different types of social connections. It's not all bad and different types of innovation happening, but in a sense, it still also is concentrated more in urban areas. And I just sort of worry that the same people are just not going to benefit or not be seen. You sort of end up with these sort of reinforcing places of the same. It doesn't really seem to be challenging power dynamics in some ways, but in a sense, making it more difficult for certain people, just sort of changing the way in which a lot of these differences play Mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when we try to sort of fix them, it becomes about this language of, well, we need to make people more included or more visible or or present online. And that just, again, subjects them to the same forms of control. So I just feel like it's this, it's really hard to know how to break out of it in a sense. And especially having this extra added layer where there's this arbitrariness to the potential to shut down platforms just makes it seem even like a bit more hopeless in a sense um, on top of everything else. I guess two things that I am really interested in looking at is one, this sort of question of um, what the combination of things like shutdowns plus mis and disinformation as sort of another form of censorship on, on open debate, what effect that's happening in combination, especially as we are increasingly coming online different contexts and so what does that look like in different places where perhaps so not now I'm not thinking of just Kenya but in different countries where that becomes more possible what's what's debate going to look like and what does that mean for our ability to sort of have some sort of like stable debate where we agree on something sort of a factual truth and we can bring different perspectives to bear what's sort of happening to our ability to do that and so that worries me the combination of the shutdowns plus and disinformation 
The other thing I think that I'm really interested in thinking about is both the way social media is sort of allowing us to connect in different ways to people, but also then what that's doing to the quality of our debate in sort of two ways. One, um, potentially isolating us while also making us more connected. So the idea that we're not existing with other people, we're on our own platforms, we're, we're seeing it in sort of a tailored interface. What's that doing to the quality of public debate? And then the second is our ability to engage with people who are different. So this isn't just about um, echo chambers, but it's really... It sort of extends beyond that, and it's also about this sort of move physically for us to think, I guess, is more visible in Kenya as well too, but to sort of exist more in gated communities, in the communities of sort of people who are like us. And when that happens in sort of physical spaces in our cities, plus online, then what does that do to our potential to come in contact with views that are different for us, or and to actually open up debate in new ways? And I think that sort of worries me. I think we can see with some of the sort of very sort of polarizing issues that are coming up. Um, in politics as well. Um, okay, I asked this last question to all of the guests. Mm. So if you could give one piece of advice to any entity, be it Facebook, be it Canon state official person on the street corner, whoever, whoever, pick pick the entity mm. you want, what would that piece of advice be? Since we're the anti-dystopians, we have to be against dystopia in some way. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, what would the advice be? I think the advice would be that sort of point that I brought up, that we can't just use the reference point of an English-speaking Western experience of social media platforms as our understanding of what their possibilities are or what the harms are. And if I'm thinking about whether it's a tech official, whether it's someone in policy, or whether it's us to try and think about what is the possibilities of these platforms being used in different ways, we need to sort of start from how they're being used in different ways with sort of an openness to what that could look like and what the possibilities are. And I think that can also help us become much more acute, like whether it's Facebook, much more acutely aware of what the limitations of the platform are and what the dominant tendencies are, but also where there might be avenues for actually potential sort of challenges to power and ways of engaging. Mm -hmm.